everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, the real AIDS epidemic. My guest, Dr. Rebecca Colshaw, C-U-L-S-H-A-W. She'll be talking to us via Zoom from Texas. Dr. Colshaw is a mathematician, but she questioned the official science to support the HIV virus and AIDS narrative. Earlier, Rebecca taught at the University of Texas as an assistant professor. Uh, She has a doctorate in mathematics uh, from a prestigious university in Canada. Her dissertation focused upon the immune response to HIV infection and AIDS treatments. She's written for several peer-reviewed journals about mathematical modeling of HIV-related immunology and served on the editorial board of the Journal of Biological Systems. Dr. Colshaw is the author of a new book, The Real AIDS Epidemic, How the Tragic HIV Mistake Threatens Us All, which presents many of the conundrums, mistakes, and corruption in the so-called war against AIDS. Listeners and viewers will likely discover some strong parallels between flawed science behind AIDS and the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. First, let's do a broad overview. If you will, take us on a journey of what was it during your academic career that alerted you to something seriously wrong with the HIV equals AIDS equals death hypothesis and what the public was being told by health officials that encouraged you to investigate the motivations and the narratives flaws more deeply. And since then, where do you find any sound evidence that that HIV by itself is the primary or only cause of AIDS. The problem with HIV-mediated T-cell depletion by killing the cells, uh, and also, can you address Luc Montagnier, the Nobel Prize winner who received the Nobel Prize alone, not with uh, not with this so-called uh, co-founder of HIV, uh, the criticism about the HIV equals AIDS equal death hypothesis, and part of the argument uh, should be to lay out your evidence, whatever it may be. So let's begin there. The form is yours. Okay, well, you actually hit the nail on the head, Gary, with the um, CD4 depletion model of AIDS. Um, so when I was working on my research, it became quite clear to me that there was no agreed upon mechanism for how these CD4 cells were being depleted. The idea, of course, is that HIV infects these CD4 T cells and by some mysterious mechanism, it causes them to basically disappear over a period of time. The problem is nobody actually knows how that happens. And furthermore, when scientists attempt to try to culture HIV from T cells, it can barely ever be found in in CD4 T cells. This is something that Peter Duisberg pointed out early on, is just the the fact that most T cells in AIDS patients did not have any trace of genetic material related to HIV. Another issue is that over a period of, you know, it's been almost 40 years, and it's become quite clear there, there are many immunological abnormalities in AIDS patients that are not related to CD4 T cells whatsoever, things like macrophages, um, different kinds of 
white blood cell depletion. Um, and what became obvious to me was that the research focused so closely on trying to find something that was tropic for CD4 T cells or that liked to hang out in CD4 T cells. And then people focused on HIV, zoomed in on HIV much too soon, in my opinion. Um, and I think that that's kind of where things started to go wrong. All right, please give examples. So, um, examples of what exactly? Well, give us examples for um, of Dr. Who and others who said you have to really hit the um, immune system hard with these antiretrovirals like AZT, DDI, DDC, produce inhibitors. Hit them hard, hit them heavy, and that will kill the virus based upon viral loads. <clears throat> but yes. then you're challenging viral loads. Also, at one point, it was a consensus that HIV was a, the primary contributor to HIV infection, but then along comes Washington and the consensus saying, nope, <clears throat> Robert Gallo and others says, all you need by itself is HIV, no other risk factors. And a lot of well, scientists said, well, hold on, uh, prove that, prove that model. And that's where a lot of the heavy handed attacking of anyone who should challenge that. And you mentioned Peter Duisberg. Uh, he was relegated to, you know, managing the Berkeley uh, picnic for the faculty. He literally ceased to have any respect from most of the scientific community because he said it's multifactorial. So take us through the contradictions that you believe after 40 years, the main scientific community should start to be aware of and explore for themselves. Well, um, you mentioned the issue of viral load. Um, that became popular around 1995. Um, one of the main arguments that the critics of the HIV paradigm had prior to 1995 was that you just couldn't really find genetic material related to HIV and AIDS patients. In Bob Gallo's original paper from 1994, uh, 84, pardon me, um, he was only able to find any trace of HIV in fewer than half of his AIDS patients. That paper, by the way, was published after the press conference um, in March of 84, where he announced that the cause of AIDS had been found. That alone should really make people wonder what's going on. Certainly the, the research had probably been done, but to announce something to the world prior to any evidence in the peer reviewed literature is something that's extremely unusual. I'm sure you can agree. Anyways, fast forward to 1995. There were some, this is when um, the idea of highly active antiretroviral therapy became, became quite popular. Um, there were a couple of papers in Nature. There was the uh, Shaw paper and then the Ho and Wei papers, and they claimed that they were able to find massive amounts of um, HIV in people because they started using the PCR test to measure viral load. Probably since COVID happened, a lot of us who didn't have any knowledge of the PCR test are now aware that what it does is it takes small amounts of genetic material and amplifies it through um, anywhere from 25 up to 40 plus cycles 
And what that ha- what happens when that when when you do that is you exponentially you double it every single time. So you can imagine that if, basically PCR helps you find a needle in a haystack, and you can see the problems because you're not actually measuring infectious virus um, mainstream um, estimates for how much PCR overestimates um, infectious virus is on the order of 60,000. So that itself is an issue. And those papers from 1995, they are the basis upon which highly active antiretroviral hit, hit hard hit early therapy were um, based upon. And um, furthermore, the mathematical models in those pa- papers were wrong. They, um, if you read them correctly, they indicated the loss of every single T cell in the body within two months of infection, which is clearly not what happens in AIDS. So one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves about these papers is, do they stand up to the test of time? And I would argue that they don't. Okay, what will help the audience is if you were to take your time, no rushing, and lay out what you consider the argument against the official AIDS narrative, both its diagnostic failures, its treatment failures, its scientific failures, its information uh, failures, much like what is happening now with a whole group, thousands of scientists and physicians, some of the most respected in their fields in the world, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Cole, uh, um, and uh, Dr. Pierre Corey, etc. Now, these are orthodox, mainstream, pro-vaccine, pro-Fauci people until they started seeing the flaws. Now they're speaking out in mass. The Great Barrington Declaration by three professors of immunology, one from Harvard, one from Oxford, one from Stanford, said you should not be doing the quarantine. It is not helping. It is hurting. Again, it was all pushed aside. You have far more people today challenging COVID after three years than you've ever had in the entire history of HIV. Anthony Fauci, the same Anthony Fauci, controlled the war on AIDS and told uh, told us what we should use, AZT. And, uh, but he didn't suggest Bactrim, which could have helped uh, hundreds of thousands of persons with um, AIDS-defining illnesses uh, with uh, lung infections. And, and yet he's not been challenged for anything he did on AIDS. So take us through your general overall arguments so we get an idea of what you believe and what you don't believe and what you believe should be challenged by what we have up to this point accepted. Okay. Well, I would love to start with the uh, treatment failures, first of all, and I would like to draw attention to a couple of things. Um, First of all, one of the main pushes that's been happening since um, my book was pub- my or first book was published in 2007 is the push to get HIV negative people who are considered to be at risk of acquiring whatever HIV positivity is and putting them on anti HIV drugs as prophylactics it's called pre exposure prophylaxis prep for short i'm sure you've seen some of the advertisements on tv they're quite quite well <laughs> they certainly target uh, populations that are um, con- considered to be marginalized. Um, but it's crazy <laughs> to think about putting people who 
are HIV negative on toxic chemotherapy for life. And basically the only argument that the AIDS establishment has at this point is that the drugs appear to work. And I would question whether that is the case. Um, first of all, in the peer-reviewed literature, clinical trials in the age of, AIDS, age of AIDS tend to focus not on morbidity and mortality of patients, but on surrogate markers like viral load or the level of CD4 T cells. And I mean, at one point, I believe David Rasnick said that he was at a conference and somebody said, oh, clinical endpoints are dead in, in HIV research. So first of all, we have no way of knowing if people are actually getting better. And I'd like to draw your attention to um, a class action lawsuit that has been filed against Gilead Pharmaceuticals. Um, there are 23,000 plaintiffs. That number alone should shock people because the estimate for the number of people with HIV in the United States is 1 million. So that is 2%. And those are just the people that have come forward. Um, what happened was people were put on a, a version of the um, antiviral drug Truvada. Um, Truvada is a DNA chain terminator, which means that it works by killing cells. Um, so it doesn't just kill virus, it kills healthy cells as well, which as you know, causes many of the side effects that people experience. Um, so Truvada causes bone loss and necrosis, and it also causes kidney damage. Um, Gilead had a, an earlier version of this drug called TDF that they kept prescribing, even though they knew that a newer version called TAF was safer, not sure how much safer it is. Um, but let me just give you a few examples of what has happened to some of these people on these on, on these medications. Would it be okay if I gave gave you some personal stories? Certainly. Okay, so all of these lawsuits, they're publicly available. Um, I'm just going to give you a few examples of some Truvada victims. Um, the, Vanessa Nasha, um, she filed a suit in 2019 in Delaware. She was diagnosed HIV positive in 1986, started taking Tr Truvada in 2004. So already she's lived 18 years, um, which maybe makes you wonder how you know deadly H her HIV diagnosis really was. Between 2009 and 2010, her hips failed. She had to get two hip replacements and then she became confined to a wheelchair. She had a second surgery for complication, uh, sorry, her second surgery, she had complications, she had to be transfused. Um, a fellow named Ricardo Wooler, he lost 17 teeth in three years on Truvada. Um, Christopher Piero, he filed a suit in 2018 in Louisiana. He was on Truvada from 2008 and at 30, he had bone loss so severe that he had to have both hips replaced. There are so many more stories like this and I believe that they're just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how toxic these drugs are. Okay. Now let's go through some of the mistakes that you feel were made when it comes to diagnosing a person with HIV. I know that you knew Kerry Mullis. I knew him very well. In fact, I have an hour and 54-minute uh, film of him that I made back in 1996 up on, uh, up on YouTube. 
So they, they took it down. It's now on Rumble and GaryNall.com. But he was adamant that Fauci didn't know what he was doing, actually tried to get a debate with Fauci at the University of South Carolina with the president of the university, asked Fauci. Fauci refused to debate Kerry Mullis, who was the discoverer of the PCR test and won a Nobel Prize for it in science and uh, chemistry. So there was a lot of people within the establishment who knew something was wrong, and not a lot of them spoke out because they saw how they went after Peter Duisberg in particular. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'll never forget Well, this. it's interesting that this topic is mm-hmm. the third rail for so many people because you, you, have, to, you have to ask why. Um, uh, I, I believe I'm quoting David Rasnick again. He said, I think it was him who said, the best, the best argument against HIV as a cause of AIDS is that there's no evidence for it. And if you actually start looking in the medical literature, you really, you, you can't find it. First of all, the antibody tests are completely inconsistent. They have to be diluted 400 times. Um, Roberto Giraldo did an experiment, I believe it was in 1998. Um, he was working at a hospital in New York. He took 100 blood samples, including his own, that tested negative for HIV on the ELISA test when diluted as they were meant to be diluted, which is 400 times. Then he ran the test undiluted. Every single specimen, including his, tested positive. So you have to wonder what we're actually detecting with these antibody tests. Is it really antibody specific to a virus called HIV? Or are they generalized antibodies and are, are perhaps these tests indicating something called hypergamma globulinemia, which is just basically too many antibodies to too many things? So there's the issue with the HIV antibody test. Um, the, the Western blot, which is used as a confirmatory test, tests for 10 different proteins that are associated with HIV but you don't need to have all 10 of them to get an HIV diagnosis. Not only that, but you don't have to have the same proteins in different countries. Like different countries have have different um, requirements for which proteins and how many proteins you have to test positive for. I think it's anywhere between two and four out of the 10, depending on where you live. There was an old joke that you could cure your HIV by flying to Australia and testing there. I mean, it's it's silly, but it's true. And then we get into the PCR test. The PCR test, I believe, is still not actually FDA authorized to um, detect HIV or to diagnose HIV. It's simply used to measure the quote unquote viral load in people who have already been already been term- determined to be HIV positive. It's not used on HIV negative people. And there have been some interesting studies. Um, the fellow's name escapes me, but there was a paper, I think it was in 2000, where 20 HIV-negative people were tested on um, the PCR test, and I think four of them came up with significant viral loads. So clearly, these tests are not testing for what they claim to be testing for. And I'm not even sure if they're FDA. Some of these are still under emergency use authorization, um, similar to the COVID test. I mean, the let's, same let's technology go. is used um, to measure viral load as is used to diagnose COVID. And that, again, is the technology where the genetic material is amplified so many times in order to be able to see it. You have to ask yourself, 
if you need to amplify something 25 or more times, is there even a significant amount of that agent there to cause disease? Is it not also true that the CDC in one year found over 5,000 fatalities from AIDS, yet they had no HIV detectable in their body? They called it I am so happy that you mentioned HIV negative AIDS, actually, because I think that that's a really important piece of the puzzle that we're missing. Um, sorry, I've got to get my notes here. So I talked about how at the beginning of all of this mess back in the early 80s, the focus was on CD4 T cells with this naive idea, I suppose, that the hallmark of AIDS was just this massive depletion of T cells. Um, and, and again, they zoomed in so hard on CD4 T cells that they didn't look at any other immunological abnormalities that people might have. And it had the effect of really narrowing the focus by too much. And I argue that we should be zooming out and looking at immune dysfunction that is happening in other conditions that have an overlap with immune with immunological abnormalities and AIDS, um, I would even say that you could argue that there may be more HIV negative AIDS cases than HIV positive AIDS cases if you consider all of the different immune dysfunction diseases that we see. Um, one example would be long COVID. In fact, some of the immune disruptions in long COVID are very similar to the immune disruptions in AIDS. So why not start focusing on HIV negative AIDS? Why, why not give the same funding to studying HIV negative AIDS as studying HIV and AIDS? It would maybe give us some answers that we've needed for 40 years. There's another aspect of this, and that is people were susceptible to being called an AIDS victim or having HIV if they also at the same time had pregnancy or tuberculosis, yes. malaria, uh, cholera, um, herpes, herpes 6, and over 78 known uh, conditions could cause you to test positive even if you were not positive. And there was a woman named Johnson, Christina Johnson, who did the best reporting on this her, yes. of anyone in the United States. She was really a stickler for accuracy. And she said, on the one hand, we're told that just HIV by itself is all that you need to have full-blown AIDS. But then they had 30 different conditions they called AIDS as a syndrome, and cervical cancer was one of them. So mm -hmm. I went to the scientific literature. I could find no studies whatsoever to support it that HIV was the primary cause of cervical cancer. In fact, there was no association. So I'm wondering, why did they put that in there? Because the actual uh, number of AIDS, AIDS started to go down. So how in the world, on the one hand, can you say, you have HIV, you're going to get AIDS and die in a short period of time. But then someone says, does the fact that I just, you know, I had herpes and I was pregnant and I got vaccines, flu vaccines, mm -hmm. And those are all shown to be contributing factors. Does that count? And they said, no, but it did count. And that part of the argument was ex virtually eradicated from any discussion there forward. But even in the package insert of the basic HIV 
antibody test. <clears throat> they were never testing for the virus. They were testing the antibodies to the virus. Now, historically, when you have an antibody, the antibody is almost primarily there to protect the body. That's why yes, you get neutralizing antibodies. Yeah, neutralizing antibodies. But they turned that upside down and said the neutralizing antibodies means you're going to get the disease. But the package insert says very clearly and unequivocally in every one of these tests, do not use this to determine whether or not you're infected with AIDS. <laughs> it's true. Every every test that you can, you know, confirm another test with, there's that warning. You can't use this test alone. So. Why would, you know, two or three of the tests together give you any more of an accurate answer? Of course, it doesn't. Um, but I'd like to circle back to your question about cervical cancer, because what happened, um, as as you're aware, but uh, um, our, your listeners may not be aware, was um, in 1980, in the early 1980s, the main AIDS-defining diseases were candidiasis, pneumocystis, pneumonia, um, uh, and there were a few others, but it was a very, it, Kaposi, it was a very narrow. Kaposi sarcoma. Kaposi, <clears throat> yeah, Kaposi sarcoma, which is now even considered by the mainstream to be caused by herpes virus, not, not by HIV at all. And Kaposi sarcoma, by the way, has basically disappeared in AIDS patients. But then in the 90s, something really curious happened. They, CDC expanded the definition of AIDS dramatically and it included, as you mentioned, cervical cancer, which I think was basically put in there because not enough women were getting AIDS. Then, then you know, the news articles were able to run, you know, scary headlines. Women make up the fastest growing group of people with AIDS. Um, I also think that it was possibly put in there to prop up the um, uh, human papillomavirus theory of um, cervical cancer. But another change that was made to the definition was that you could be diagnosed with AIDS in the absence of any pathology whatsoever. All you needed was to have a CD4 T cell count of fewer than 200 per milliliter at one time. So that had the effect of dramatically increasing the number of people with an AIDS diagnosis, some of whom were not actually sick at all. Me, so I would argue me, that AIDS, I mean, AIDS has changed um, even before uh, these triple drug treatments were introduced in the late 90s, the, the whole disease pathology of AIDS was looking much different. You can recall the, you know, the latency period kept increasing from like six months to one year to five years to 10 years to 15 years. And I would argue that what we saw in the mid-1980s was very different from what AIDS became even before drug treatment was introduced. Let me give you an example of what you just said, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. I took a group of 100 marathon individuals, all of whom were vegan, had healthy immune systems, no diseases, no comorbidities, and they all tested negative. We then did six months of really uh, strenuous exercising, including on Sundays running 20 to 22 miles, and plus cross-training, and mm -hmm. then... The day after the marathon, we took our blood chemistries again, and every single person had T cells below 200, some down in the teens. By That's fascinating. The I, and there there by, are some examples of this in the literature as well. But within two weeks, their immune system in our post-recovery race, every single one of their immune systems back up. 
T cells at 1600, 1400, normal, no, mm -hmm. no problems at all. But based upon that criteria for a period of time, if they would have gotten an AIDS test, they would have been told they have to go on immediately, quote, put time on your side, take AZT at 16 to 1700 milligrams a day. Generally, it was 300 milligrams uh, four times a day, even being woken up in the middle of the night, take your AZT. At the same time, <clears throat> I began to work with a group of people on a daily basis in the evenings at the Tri-State Healing Center, and there would be anywhere from 50 to 100 people show up. Now, these are all people who have been diagnosed with AIDS or HIV infection, and at one time they were all on AZT. And uh, this was before all the other uh, antiretrovirals came on the market. And so the idea was this was run by Dr. Michael Elner and one of the founders of ACT UP, ACT UP Split. And one mm -hmm. went towards the orthodox model and Big Pharma and Burroughs Welcome, and the other went towards a natural model. And the person running that natural model was there every night. And what was interesting is the support groups grew and grew and grew and grew. To we had Michael called me and says, Gary, can we keep the place open till midnight? I said, sure. And he said, well, we're going to open at noon and go to midnight, 12 hours, and we're going to do each group in an hour because we're packed. We, we have no more room. We have standing room only. And one of the guys, so I was there one night because this was also part of our healing center where on one side of an, a floor was the, uh, what was the HEAL group. It was called HEAL. Mm -hmm. And on the other side was all of our 22 medical staff, and we were treating 1,200 persons with full-blown AIDS. Not a single one died. In any case, I went over there one night, and this is what I heard. There was a real tall guy. I'm suggesting he was probably about six foot seven, six foot eight. <clears throat> Blonde hair, came from California. And this was his second night there. And he said, uh, so Michael said, tell us your story. He said, well, he said, uh, this is really unusual. Michael said, what is? He said, you have so many people here in your support group, and I keep hearing their stories. They're all getting healthier. And he said, I just come from California, and I've been in seven uh, support AIDS support group, and every single person totaling over 2,000 people in total, all dead. And you have advocates there for the pharmaceutical company that keep saying, you got to take the drugs. And when I was mentioning something like, well, what if I'm a vegan, you know, and what if I don't want to take the drugs? And what if I, oh, no, 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 that's quackery. Don't do that. You're just going to die and, and don't even come back to the meetings if you're going to do that because you're going to inspire other people to go off proven treatments that can save their lives, AZT, DDI, et cetera. He said, so if the news media ever came here and heard all your case histories and then went to California and then met the people who were running the groups that no longer exist because everyone died, mm -hmm. then they might get an idea that there's another way of approaching it. He stayed, and he actually became one of the motivating speakers to encourage people. At the end of two years, I cannot recount a single one of the people coming there in the sports system who had died. In fact, a lot of them came next door because the treatment was free. We didn't charge a penny, not insurance, nothing. And we gave intravenous vitamin C, gave... Uh, a glutathione pushes five cc's, uh, gave zeolites, a healthy diet, anti-inflammatory antiviral diet, quercetin, etc. We had a really outstanding medical and support staff. And so we had a model that worked, 
And yet the message to all these other groups was, we need drugs, more drugs, more drugs. And it wasn't more drugs they needed, but the people who were leading these charges either were innocently misinformed or were connected in some way to the pharmaceutical industry. And we know for a fact that Big Pharma was paying a lot of money to age groups to support the pharmaceutical approach. You go to one of these age conferences and every booth, hundreds of booths, all different drugs, different pharmaceuticals, and young may men uh, as spokespersons about here's our newest drug. And I'm thinking, wow, why didn't the media want to carry this story? But they didn't. And why didn't mainstream medicine want to look at the results? But they didn't. And why did uh, mainstream science accept completely discredited hypothesis for the AIDS phenomena, and yet they, they went ahead and took ones that could not be proven. In fact, just yesterday, as you know, probably, uh, Rebecca, the latest AIDS vaccine failed. Yes, There's not been that's a right. Single, I have heard about not, that. Um, not well, a single it's interesting that you should mention. Sorry. <clears throat> Go ahead, please. Okay. So it's interesting that you, you should mention um, the suppression of natural treatments. This is something that we saw as well in COVID. Um, there's a lot of money at stake here. They're ACT UP, um, all of these other AIDS advocacy organizations, thebody.com, they're all funded by pharmaceutical companies. Who do you think pays these AIDS activists their salaries? Uh, they're completely wedded to the pharmaceutical companies. And we saw back in the 80s with AZT, what, what happened was they halted the clinical trials very early because they said it would be unethical to withhold this treatment. The problem is that this set a really bad precedent for all clinical trials moving forward and not just limited to AIDS treatments. Um, the era of placebo-controlled clinical trials is almost completely gone because there's this idea that it's unethical to withhold treatment. And um, so this started with AZT, it got worse with the protease inhibitors. A lot of trials, they, they were halted early. They said, we can't you know, we can't withhold these wonderful drugs from people. And I mean, now you see the result. You've got drugs like Truvada that are causing people immense harm, 23,000 plaintiffs alone. I mean, that is a staggering number. And then when you talk about rushing things through, I think we all saw a really lovely example of that in the last few years with the miracle COVID vaccines, where they basically ran a massive clinical trial in real time on the population, and it failed. I mean, the vaccines fail to stop transmission, and they fail to keep most people out of the hospital yet. And I don't think that that could have ever happened without the lowering of standards for clinical trials that really, really started with AIDS and was a very political thing. You know, these three-letter organizations were being very pressured by AIDS activists. There were people, you know, wanting free AZT back in the day. So, I mean, the problem is bigger than just AIDS. And I think that you would agree with that. Absolutely agree with it. <clears throat> I went out to the University of California, Berkeley, to film Peter Duisberg. While there, two of the leading department heads, chairmen of the department, uh, in molecular biology and uh, public health, agreed to talk with me. In fact, I didn't know who they were, 
I did, uh, Dr. Bailey and uh, another gentleman. And after I interviewed uh, Peter Duisburg, Peter Duisburg held up this big book in his hands. And he said, here is a book on retroviruses. Everything we know in science is in this gigantic uh, book, reference book. And he said, and yet they're saying that HIV by itself, with no contributing factors, doesn't matter what your lifestyle is, um, we're all equally capable of being infected. You could be a, you know, you, you could be a, uh, a you could be a, a celibate nun in a monastery somewhere in the Midwest, and you could still get AIDS. That was the message being perpetrated. That literally caused the end of disco. Disco stopped in 1985. I mean, just stopped because people were afraid of de either dancing around or socializing or having sex with anyone out of a disco scene, and that all of them closed down. And New York became a different city in its nightlife. And so Peter said, look, he said, I will probably be stopped, even though I, I have never had a grant uh, not fulfilled by the National Institute of Health or the Damon Runyon Fund, all these other places he was mentioning. And he was considered one of the best um, retrovirologists in the world. And he said, but once you touch that third rail, it's over for you. I said, then why are you saying this? He said, because not now, but maybe sometime in the future, people will listen to what I'm having to say now and realize how wrong we were by trusting those in power and authority. He was right. Because right after I did that interview, I walked down the hall, and there were two gentlemen, and I filmed them. I've never played this tape um, because I didn't do subsequent documentaries on that. But they both said the same thing. Here's what they said. Peter is right in everything he's been saying. And all of us here who are real scientists know that he is right. However, if we go out and say that he is right, all of our grants will stop. All of our funding will stop. And we too, like Peter, will end up on the junk heap of history. I said, that's interesting because the person that invented AZT at the National Cancer Institute said this shouldn't be used in anyone for any reason, because it should be thrown on the junk heap of history. It's just one of those strange things that caught my mind at the time. And one of them well, said, It wasn't AZT. AZT was a failed cancer chemotherapeutic, wasn't it? So too that's, toxic that's to use said. on cancer, but totally Even fine to use on, on babies. You know, infants and pregnant women. For a long time, yes. AZT this... was the only drug that was given to pregnant women. Um, but I'd like to just circle back to what you said about how, you know, the fear, how scared people were in the early days. I think Oprah Winfrey on her TV show famously said by 1990, one in five heterosexuals might have AIDS. But let me draw your attention to something that I think is absolutely fascinating and should be just on an epidemiological level, the nail in the coffin for the HIV hypothesis. And that is that HIV was present basically everywhere in in the United States when they first started testing for it at about 1 million Americans that estimate has not changed and the demographic characteristics of HIV positivity are incredibly consistent through racial groups it's always African Americans that test um, positive at the highest rate Asian Americans test uh, positive at the lowest rate 
and this is in any risk group. Um, Henry Bauer wrote an excellent book um, in 2007 as well um, uh, about the demographic characteristics of HIV. And it's fascinating to think that something that was a new virus, supposedly a new virus in 1985, did not behave like an infectious agent at all. It has been present in the same demographic characteristics at the same frequency for 40 years. AIDS has not behaved that way. As you know, the epidemiology of AIDS has been very different. And if if this theory were true, if there were an infectious agent called HIV that inevitably led to AIDS and death, we should see the same demographic characteristics in AIDS as we do in HIV positivity, and we do not. And to me, that's stunning. And every mathematician that I have brought that information to has said, yeah, that, that makes sense. So. Let's put this in perspective. <clears throat> Whether someone listening right now believes that it just HIV, the virus by itself could cause 30 symptoms. If you believe that, fine. Then create the scientific basis to support your, your belief, and then see whether it holds water. If you believe, as many did, that you have to have cofactors, and uh, those cofactors become as important in the catalytic actions of HIV, then that's also fine. That's your belief. If you believe that a person's lifestyle and behavior is consistent with the spread of HIV, that's fine. So no matter what you believe, those are your beliefs. We're not here to challenge your beliefs. We're here merely to challenge the initial protocols for testing, uh, for treatment, and for the information that was being given, all of which has been debunked, all of it. And instead, yes. you know, and that's what people have to understand. Just like right now, but in a much shorter period of time, we have thousands, 76,000 individual scientists and physicians signed what was called the Great Barrington Declaration, where a professor from Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford said, your quarantining at home is wrong. You're going to have more disaster from that quarantining than you will from the virus. They were right. Others came forward. Mind you, we're not talking about uncredentialed people. We're talking about some of the most credentialed people in their science fields in world history meaning you don't get any better. And prior to COVID, those would have been the names that would have been uh, said, go contact this person, read his textbook, read his articles, and you'll see. Now they say, let's look at what really is at work here. Are all children equally um, susceptible? Then show us the science. Well, no one could show the science. How about teenagers? No one could show the science. They were going to have more people die from the uh, virus than uh, the vaccine. It turns out more people died from the vaccine than the virus. It's the epidemic of the unvaccinated. And hence, you better take your vaccines when people did. People complied upwards of 80% of Americans. And now you're told to keep taking them. And now you want to make it mandatory in every school in the United States, the, uh, the COVID vaccine. And yet you start looking at all these unexpected deaths, unexplained deaths, which represent more people have died from unexplained deaths after the vaccine was Im Im implemented than from COVID prior. And now look back, who caused all this? Anthony Fauci, which institutes? World Health Organization, National Institute of Allergy, Infectious Disease, National Institute of Health, the very same institutions that ran the war on AIDS. The tests, same tests 
They were wrong then, they're wrong now. And as a result, upwards of 95% of all the people that tested positive and sent them into some form of emotional shock and chronic stress, which itself can raise your blood pressure and kill you, uh, these people did not have uh, COVID because the uh, so-called test was uh, magnified at 40 to 45 repetitions of cycle, which mean almost a trillion, uh, looking at a trillion microbes, uh, amplification of microbes at a trillion times. And as Anthony Fauci himself said, anything above about 33 to 36 is junk. It's just debris. And yet almost every single laboratory in the world was testing at 40, 45, and all junk science. But then the moment you came back with a false positive reading, think of what that did to you. You suddenly started to feel, am I going to get sick? Am I going to be put on an intubator and go to the hospital? We were given misinformation. And boy, the power of information, uh, power of motivation towards the orthodoxy and compliance was very high. Now, what was interesting, I did a film, and it was called AIDS the Real Heroes. And every single person in that film, none of them died, and all of them had AZT, take, had taken AZT and had been to all the orthodox uh, support groups and got so sick or their partners got sick and died, they said, I'm just not going to keep going because in a week, two weeks, a month, I'm going to be dead. They shifted over to a complete lifestyle modification, juicing, building up the immune system, intravenous vitamin C, herbs, etc. And it was not about sex. It was about the breakdown of the immune system and the people who were getting infected, what was common in, in their epidemiology. Then some honest epidemiologists came out and says, well, we're not all equally infected or equally susceptible to AIDS or HIV infection or dying. And they were right. And as you well, said, we're all not the, we're, we're, we're not all equally susceptible to most infectious agents. I, I mean, that's just a, a fact of life. The terrain matters. The germ matters as well, but the terrain matters. Um, I think, though, we talked about Kerry Mullis and how he tried to get a debate going. People have been trying to get a debate going for 40 years. That is not the approach that is going to work for us. They're not going to debate with us. They just shut things down by using pejorative words like denialist, gaslighting people effectively. Um, I would suggest that what we need to do is we need to kind of have a project similar to, um, you've probably heard, I'm sure you've heard of the um, replication crisis in um, social psychology. Um, many, many papers were, were published and their results were not replicable. And that has led to a huge crisis in that field. Um, there are other examples of you know, for example, people used to think that ulcers were caused by stress, and it turned out that, in fact, they were caused by Helicobacter pylori. Um, I would say one of the one of the things that we can do if they refuse to engage in debate, what we need to do is we need to look at some of these seminal papers, some of these papers like Gallo 1984, like Ho and Wei and Shaw 1995, um, and 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 ask, can these results be replicated? And if they can't, we need to start, you know, considering whether some of these papers need to be retracted as well. I'd like to draw um, viewers' attention to the website Retraction Watch. Um, 
they basically just, you know, list all of these papers that have been retracted. I would argue that there are probably, I think Eleni Papadopoulos Iliopoulos of the Perth group once said that she thought that every paper on HIV should be retracted. That's how bad they are. Good points. Now, in the conclusion here, take us through what you found was the corruption over the various AIDS drugs, including the highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HEART, and its serious adverse effects, kidney failure, bone density, teeth loss, deleterious redistribution of body fat, the hump yeah, syndrome, camel syndrome, <coughs> and also you mentioned Travada and the scandal behind that with 22, 23,000 plaintiffs and what will come under discovery from that and also how no no vaccine has worked at all. And I don't know how many vaccines. I haven't been up on, on the science last time. It was over 93. Uh, who knows mm -hmm. how many it is, but every single one. Oh, it was a, it, it's an astounding number of vaccines that have failed. And it's not surprising that these vaccines would fail since vaccines produce antibodies and people that are considered to be HIV positive have those antibodies. Yeah, it makes no sense. But give us your, give us, no matter what a person's views are on AIDS, uh, give us your, your view of what you believe we should not be supporting anymore and what we should be doing to help those who have AIDS-defining conditions in order to, in effect, give them options, let them know that there are other options available, as which is now is happening with many of the people involved with uh, COVID, long, long haulers who have COVID, and now there are protocols to help help those people, uh, people with side effects, there are now protocols to help those people. And these came from the very people who are treating successfully persons at the very first day of being diagnosed with COVID. Uh, they implemented uh, different protocols and many uh, people in this audience already know about the uh, the monoclonal antibodies, the steroids, the uh, vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, uh, mag magnesium, et, et cetera, and also uh, the intravenous vitamin C plus hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and azithromycin, et cetera. Those things saved countless lives then. They're helping people today, but expanded substantially. What would you say would be the course today if people were concerned about AIDS that's a wonderful question. Um, I would like to point out that in my new book, which is coming out in March, I have a, an afterword that is basically a roadmap for future action, which is um, suggestions for how we can approach this topic moving forward. And I think one of the most important things is what I had mentioned before, and that is that we really need to zoom out and have a look at HIV negative AIDS and see really what's happening immunologically in people with conditions such as chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID, um, possibly Lyme disease, these diseases that have, that, that are, that, that are um, characterized by immune dysfunction and immune dysregulation. And I think that if we start looking at the similarities between different immunological markers in HIV AIDS patients and non-HIV AIDS patients, that will open up 
a lot of options for treatment. Now, I don't know what those treatments might be, but I think that it would be worth looking to see if there are other viruses that are common in these people, other pathogens. Um, there is so much research that could be done if the budget given to HIV AIDS was split into two and give half of that budget to studying non-HIV AIDS. I think that would give us a, a lot of information that would be very useful and could actually be used to help cure people moving forward. I would agree. So again, we want to thank you for being on today. And you're listening to Rebecca Colshaw, C-U-L-S-H-A-W, whose new book will be coming out shortly, The Real AIDS Epidemic, How the Tragic HIV Mistake Threatens Us All. And because you can almost overlay AZT and HIV and all the problems and all the pronouncements and all the politics, and then suddenly you see that it goes almost perfectly fit over COVID. Same institutions, same corporations exploiting it, uh, same front groups, uh, the same gaslighting, the same attacking anyone who challenges it. And the point is, if someone's sick, you want to help them. We help twelve hundred people. We help twelve hundred people with full blown AIDS, and uh, and those people, not one died in a fifteen year period that I had the tri state healing healing center open. We had eight people completely reverse their HIV status after sixteen months and an advanced protocol, and we had ten at the Institute of Biology where I had nothing to do with it except it was my protocol. And there again, it's about if something works, it should be able to be reproduced using the same protocol by another person. And it was. They had 10 out of 10 people reverse their HIV status to HIV negative and completely gained health and all their immune modulators came back because we work on the immune system. And that's what really mattered. So it's not a denial of AIDS and it's not a denial of HIV. No, no absolutely not. Rather, it is a um, challenge to the mis mismanagement of the pandemic. And that's what a lot of people I have said, and yet the critics come in and almost all in industry plants and say, oh, no, then you're an AIDS denier. No, not at all. No one's denying HIV. No one's denying AIDS. No one's denying seriousness. No one's denying suffering and death. But we are challenging, and my guest is challenging, show us where you've been right about anything in the last 40 years, and you haven't when it comes to AIDS, and now you're the people running covid and everything you've told us about COVID and its protocols have been wrong also. Isn't it time Absolutely. we stop funding these same institutions and individuals and groups? We, we have a very narrow window of opportunity here because I think that a lot of people's eyes have been opened to the corruption of some of these three-letter institutions. And I would also like to close by saying I absolutely don't deny AIDS. I think AIDS is real. I think HIV is not. And I think that we need to shift the paradigm to, to looking at really treating immune dysfunction and not just narrowly, narrowly thinking all we have to do is suppress the viral load. Doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair with broken hips, that, that, that paradigm needs to shift. I would agree with part of what you said. I would offer a different opinion. I believe that AIDS, and I've seen, I've worked with AIDS patients, uh, and it took about 16 months to two years to help them retain their uh, their whole immune system. And we have all the blood workups to prove that, and the medical doctors and the nurses all there who witness this. But I also believe that HIV does exist. I just believe that instead of looking at one virus causing 30 different conditions and always being lethal, that's what we were told, 
that we mm-hmm. should ask ourselves how many other cofactors contributed to the increasing of the risk factor from going from HIV positive. And we should also look to full-blown AIDS. And we should also look at how many people have AIDS clearly defined by all the symptoms in the blood workup, but they can't find the virus. And that's the actual CDC's own study that showed that. And that's why they called it idiopathic. It was over 5,000 one year. You can't just simply slide it under the door. You can't, you can't hide that and say, well, okay, we had 5,000 people who, you know, died of, uh, of AIDS, but they didn't have HIV in their body. Well, if you're saying that the only way they could get AIDS is with HIV, then how did they get the AIDS? Already you've derived uh, a contradiction. Absolutely. I do think that um, really broadening our focus and looking at HIV negative AIDS, you know, doing, you know, really digging and, and doing some trials for, you know, different kinds of therapies that, uh, that, that would help people who have these AIDS symptoms, whether they have any trace of HIV antibody positivity or not. Um, in some sense, I think that non-HIV AIDS may be the key to this whole thing. You may be right. And I want to give a shout out to uh, a person who helped lead this charge. What a courageous, gallant, dynamic individual. In fact, there were a group, Charles Ortlieb, uh, the publisher of the largest gay publication in America, uh, the New York native, and, and Nina mm-hmm. Ostrom and his whole staff and and the other people who were willing within the uh, community to say, no, you're wrong, Fauci, you're wrong, Gallo, you're wrong. And they took a beating and ultimately they closed down his publication. But he's still alive and he's still talking and he's still writing and good for all of you. And go to go to Charles Ortlieb's uh, uh, pages. He's got all these articles up on Amazon you can read. Yes, we look I would definitely to recommend... I would definitely recommend looking at Charles Ortleb's work. And I would also like to give a shout out to Nina Ostrom as well, because she has written the foreword to my new book, The Real AIDS Epidemic. When you speak to her next, tell her I'd send the best because she had come on the program and she's very matter of fact, no emotion, no, no ideal, uh, none of the ideology, simply facts. And she Mm -hmm. just lay out the facts as one of America's greatest investigative journalists. So let her know that I've never forgotten that. Never forgotten her contributions. You know, sometimes we we lose a battle, but we forget we're in a war. Mm-hmm. So all of us lost the battle to convince uh, the larger population that we were being misled and we could save lives. And we weren't listened to. And that's also happening now. But now we have a huge, huge number of scientists and physicians in the public who are pushing back because of the revelations that everything that anyone would say that would challenge uh, the official Fauci narrative, uh, you were to be attacked, you were to be not given a platform. Now it's proven. We have the proof. It's not conspiracy theory. We have the evidence. So the government, all of its agencies involved, and individuals and the media all work together, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, all to condemn anyone who challenged it, same way they did with AIDS. Thank you very much. We appreciate being on today. Thank you for having me on. Rebecca Colshaw, my guest. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Have a nice day.